in Canada is on the rise. According to recent Statistics Canada data, violent crime is at its most severe since 2007, and the murder rate is the highest it's been since 1992. My guest on today's program says our criminal justice system is not working, that it is expensive and ineffective and inhumane, and that the time has come to transform it. Benjamin Perrin is a professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia and the former lead policy advisor on criminal justice and public safety for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. His new book is Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. Ben Perrin is my guest today on Lean Out. Ben, welcome back to Lean Out. Thanks so much. It's great to have you on today to talk about Canada's criminal justice system. This is an issue I care deeply about. I spent my early years as a journalist interviewing rappers whose lives had been profoundly impacted by police and and the prison system. Your new book is an indictment of how dysfunctional our system is. It makes for difficult reading. Um, But you open the book with your father-in-law story. Tell us about him to start and how he's influenced your thinking. Yeah, so I had a really personal connection to some of the broader themes in the book. My father-in-law was abandoned essentially as a young child, left uh, dislocated from his his mother around age three, sent to a, a very abusive boarding school at age five. And I'd heard about some of this stuff, but didn't really understand about how childhood trauma impacts people throughout their life course. So, you know, when I enter into the family situation, I I, I had a really, really awful relationship with my father-in-law to start with. It was very difficult. I had no idea, for example, and I don't think he did either. He also had uh, FASD. He had a PTSD, a number of other things as well, uh, a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues. He as an Indigenous man who was uh, not raised in his Indigenous community or by his Indigenous mother, he felt completely disconnected from his own identity. His uh, father is Chinese, so he very much kind of connected in, to a very different set of cultural beliefs and practices. And anyway, he um, he also developed addictions to alcohol, a number of different substances. And, you know, it's really hard to have uh, healthy relationships with all these things going on and you don't know. And, you know, we did our best to try to navigate that and have some understanding as best we could. But yeah, I got to the point where for for quite a while we were talking to him. There was a question whether he'd even be able to come to our, our wedding, you know, the wedding of his daughter. So, mm. but um, incredibly things changed for him. And our relationship today is is absolutely wonderful. And the 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 big inflection point for him was when he, you know, on the verge of being homeless, really, as he says, decided to to go out into the wilderness. And he he didn't have any cultural teachings around this. It was as he was leaving, he saw a documentary and realized this sounds a little bit like a vision quest that his indigenous, you know, forefathers had practiced. And so he he went out for for 70 days uh, with his two horses and and a cell phone that he'd try to charge up every now and then he could find access to some campsite and it was a completely transformative experience for him and so i opened the book with with his story and end it with his story but he also was caught up in the criminal justice system and he was hurt as a person and he hurt other people and the 
the story really opens with the RCMP and a helicopter literally hunting him down in the wilderness of Kananaskis country, Alberta. So uh, I won't I won't spoil the story for for readers, but it's a really powerful story of how if we do things differently, we can have quite incredible outcomes uh, rather than you know throw the book at them. Um, the, the police did actually let him go and allowed him to, to finish his 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 time in the wilderness. And he came out of that, you know, completely free of his his addiction to crack cocaine. And that 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 was a starting point of a real change. He went through a whole spiritual transformation. And as I said, that that was the start of some really big changes in our whole family. And it was it's been incredible to get to know him and to understand him and have more empathy for him and to have him share his story with our kids and being willing and interested to share it in the book. It just does such a good job of two things, I think, at, at the beginning of the book, grounding the book in hope and optimism that that people can get well, but also bringing it home that this crisis we're experiencing in this country right now is our family members, it is our neighbors, it is our friends, it is our community members. And and on that note, I just want to, before we dive into some of the nuts and bolts of policy, I want to I talk just quickly, as you do at the beginning of the book, about trauma and the role that plays for both victims and offenders. And this is, just to be clear, this is not the kind of trauma we are hearing about on campuses. It is not microaggressions or anything like that. This is things like physical and sexual abuse, like having a parent incarcerated. Why is understanding how prevalent this kind of trauma is among those caught up in the system so important for figuring out? where we go and how we fix it. I, I believe we can't understand any any criminal justice story or incident without a deep understanding of trauma. And it, it really runs the gamut. At, at its very basics, we know that people who experienced childhood trauma, things that you mentioned a minute ago, are 50% more likely to harm others later in life. You know, there's that saying, hurt people, hurt people. The research does back that up. It's not a foregone conclusion, right? It's not fatalism, but it's you're much higher risk. And likewise, I, I found it really uh, just just disturbing and shocking to hear that you're also more likely to be victimized again later in life, and you're in fact eight times more likely to be sexually victimized as an adult if you were abused as a kid. And so the origins of of harm in our society start at the earliest possible stages, and they actually, of course, we know they they go back generationally and intergenerationally through through families, and particularly we see that with with indigenous people as a leading example of that. But it's not limited to to indigenous people. So so that's where I start the book there. I think if we don't understand trauma, we will mistake and get wrong pretty much everything with the criminal justice system. One example of that, just a real simple, straightforward, clear one would be if you're assessing a witness's testimony, whether it's the accused, whether it's a complainant, whether it's a third party, and they are someone with unresolved trauma, and you're told, judges and juries are told for, through our law of evidence, which I've taught, that they're supposed to use their common sense understanding of how people would present. So what that means is if someone's describing what what we would, you know, objectively think is a really horrific event, but they have no emotion, they've got flat emotion, they're almost describing it in a robotic way, there's a tendency I think for people to say, did that really happen? It doesn't seem like this person really went through that. Like they're they're so flat in how they're describing it, but anyone who who understood about trauma would understand that that person is probably dissociated or you know, numbness and in, in describing uh, this sort of situation is a common way that some people with unresolved trauma would 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 deal with that. Another one relates to how we tell our stories, and trauma impacts the brain, and it impacts your ability to tell your story in a in a in a clear and and chronological way. And so, I saw that in our interviews. You know, this book is really about two things, right? It's about the lived experiences of people, rather than 
looking at the world the way the criminal justice system does, which is at this one moment in time, did you do this thing that you weren't supposed to do? It's like looking through the through a straw at the world. You're, you're just not seeing the whole picture. So we really zoom back. And, and I think if we're serious about addressing harm in our society, we have to understand how trauma impacts people throughout the system. And, and you mentioned these interviews that you did. You did extensive interviews with people. And I, I just for listeners who may not have had any contact with people who have gone through our prison system, can you paint a picture for us of the kinds of conditions that people encounter when they go into our prisons? It's uh, it's really awful stuff. I mean, I I was shocked, to be honest, about some of the stories that I heard, the incredible uh, cruelty that I heard. Everyone has a different experience in, in prison, but we know that that virtually universally, it's a very negative, very toxic, very traumatic one. And so I heard, you know, without getting into really graphic detail for folks who aren't maybe prepared to hear some of the stuff, just to give a sense of the hopelessness, you know, the first person who responded to our research poster, which we put out, you know, halfway houses and women's shelters across the country, asking both survivors and people who had been incarcerated, one question, right? It was, what was your experience like with the criminal justice system? And we later asked them, you know, how could have, things have been done better for you to get a better outcome? And the first person who responded was, everyone's got a pseudonym. I call her Courtney in the book. If people read the book, that's who I'm talking about here. And she is a 39 years old and an Indigenous woman, interviewed her. And she first started being incarcerated at 12 years of age. So it's it's not even like people were in prison for most of their adult life. It's actually as their te- as teenage young young children really, and from ages twelve to thirty nine, she was in and out, in and out, in and out of different youth, provincial, territorial, and federal prisons for twenty five years. And the kind of things she told me about, I would ask her, what was it like being incarcerated as a young person? You know, as a twelve year old young woman, young girl, really a teenage girl, and she said. Her initial answer, I was shocked by because I'd read about prisons already. I knew what I was going to probably hear. She said, oh, it was, it was great. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is how I thought this research project is going to go. But, you know, okay, let's hear. So I, you know, of course, asked her, you know, what was great about it? And she said, they gave us three meals a day. And sometimes we even got a snack. That's what was good and amazing about her incarceration time. And then, of course, I, I came to realize very quickly, again, something related to trauma if your upbringing, if your life has been defined by abuse, that is your normal. And so prison was good because it was consistent with that normal, but you got three meals. So she went on to describe how, in fact, in that very same institution, whenever she even swore at the prison guards, she would be locked in a rubber room in isolation by herself. She talked about how it was a co-ed institution, how she would be harassed and asked for sexual favors by the boys. And then she talked about how when she was incarcerated in a federal penitentiary and continued to experience the, the prison violence of trying to stand up for herself and being having no one there and, and turning to violence really to protect herself and learning how to do that in prison, that she uh, she tried to take her life. And the, the, one of the most disturbing things she shared was that the response they had to someone like her, this Indigenous woman who had an incredibly traumatic upbringing, I mean, imagine what brings you to prison at age 12, right? She was basically quite literally stitched up, put back in an isolation, a segregation cell. That was the, that was the, the care that she was given. And 
yeah, just devastating, just devastating stories like that. There are people who had substance use disorders who 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 overdosed uh, in prison afterwards for fortunate to be alive. Many of many folks are not. They they die in, in huge numbers in, in prison and immediately upon release. We also heard from people who were uh, who asked for help. Uh, one man who was sent to prison for just over 10 months and he was asked on entry, do you want any support? He also tried to commit suicide and had mental health and substance use issues. And he said, yeah, I want help. Like, I, I want to talk to a counselor. I'm ready. He said it was only two weeks before he he left. So like 10 months into his sentence, that psychologist came by and said, oh, we're, we're ready to talk to you. Would you like to have have a conversation? And and he was like, he said it made him feel like a, like he wasn't even a human being. He'd asked for help. And they were, he, he says very clear, they were just covering their ass in his own words. So they could say that he'd met with a counselor. I mean, it's, it's very disturbing reading. And uh, these are things that I have heard before in interviews, these kinds of conditions. Um, the, the, it is difficult to know because we, we are, it's difficult to know where we go from here because we are also seeing a lot of society wide problems and it's hard to know how to approach those. So for example, we are seeing rising concerns about public safety across the country with stranger attacks in Vancouver, subway violence in Toronto. My producer just witnessed an incident two days ago on the subway. Um, you've been critical of of the tough and bail conditions position. Uh, these conditions were previously softened under the Trudeau government. Supporters of tougher conditions say we've seen a rise in repeat violent offenders on bail, probation, parole, who are then responsible for attacks. This includes a man on probation with a lengthy criminal background who then unprovoked murdered a 16-year-old boy in a Toronto subway station. If these conditions should not be toughened, then what what should happen? What What should we do? Yeah, the approach that I really take in this book is what I would describe as a, an evidence-based approach. Like we need to, and I describe it as a new transformative justice vision. So the first half of the book really is all about why the system is the way it is, why we're getting these results. Like those results you described are a product of our current system and they're not going to get better with more police or keeping people in for, you know, bail a little bit longer. Like clearly there's, a, and I'll explain why in a second, but clearly there's a need for some people to be separated from society because they pose a significant risk to to people. The, the, the key though is we know that virtually everyone is eventually going to get out. So a couple of things happen when you deny someone bail, right? One is if they had housing or a job or had community mental health support or were in substance use treatment, all those things are basically done. You're, 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 they're cut, cut right off. Second thing happens is when you're in pretrial custody, you get extra credit because those conditions are so harsh, you are going to get extra credit. So you're sitting in there waiting. In Canada, the, 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 the Supreme Court has said that if you don't go to trial within 18 months of being charged, and actually your trial's not even finished, that's supposed to be done by then, then that's an unreasonable delay and the charges get withdrawn. So there's a clock that's running. Now let's assume that you're, let's say that you're guilty, okay? Your incentive is to sort of, you know, wait at the clock a little bit, get that extra credit, plead out, and then, but by the time you plead, the judge will literally say like, oh, well, you're, you're free to go tomorrow morning or today. Like you've served your time. So you're back out. And at that point, the key is pretrial custody. You have had no programs. You've had no support. There's been nothing, nothing to deal with the underlying causes. So this is the revolving door that the system creates. And that's why just saying, let's just deny bail isn't going to work. But like I said, we do have a problem. So how do we deal with it? I think the key is for those people who do have to be separated from society, including at that earliest stage of you've just been charged, 
we need to completely abolish the way that we deal with the conditions of incarceration right now. All of the like physical architecture, all of the people who work in the system, who are part of that system, need to get retrained and into less traumatic roles, quite frankly. And many of them talked about the, need, the, the trauma they experienced as well as corrections officers. And we need to take a very different approach. I talk in the book about what Norway does. The focus is on one question. It's, you know, what kind of a neighbor do you want to have? Again, everyone's getting out. So rather than having someone who's in those current conditions we've talked about, instead, the, the environment looks a lot like a college campus. It's normalized. It's meant to model uh, healthy relationships and behaviors. The uh, access that you have is to things like vocational training. So when you come out, you have an employable skill and a job. Uh, you have access to mental health support, substance use support, community support. People are coming into the into the place of uh, of custody and actually meeting with you and supporting you when you leave. Their goal is that you don't come back. And you know the results speak for themselves. They had a system very similar to ours, and they had rates similar to ours of reoffending around sixty to seventy percent reoffending within you know a couple of years, probably is most of the stats. And then it reduced down to just twenty percent when they took this more humane and innovative approach. So we actually get better public safety outcomes if we are more humane. And so that's a big stretch for some people. Some people want to see harsh conditions and harsh punishment. And my response to that is the the, the punishment is that they're separated from society. You've lost your, your life. You, you're not at liberty. You're still locked in these places of incarceration. But we are all better off if you get better and not worse inside. And our, our system is very expensive. How does the Norway system compare in terms of cost for the taxpayer? Well, I think we have to look at the, you know, the lifetime cost of a chronic repeat offender. And in our system, because of someone going in and out, in and out, it's it's in the millions of dollars. Like I, I talked at the beginning about, about Courtney, you'd spent 25 years. Okay. The, the the fiscal cost of that, if you just think of the incarceration period alone, is in the millions of dollars. And if you add on all the other costs of the police officer intervention, the courtroom time, the prosecutors, the parole and probation staff, I mean, we're, we're, I, I wouldn't, I'll throw out a figure. It's probably the five to $10 million is the back of the envelope, you know, estimate. That's a lot of money to spend on, on one person and have horrific outcomes and for them and for society. Right. And so I think that we, we, when we look at these evidence-based programs that I talk about as, as part of a new transformative justice system, they they have a couple things in common. One is they have lower rates of recidivism. Another is they have higher rates of, of survivor or victim satisfaction. I'm talking about things like restorative justice and Indigenous-led policing. And they are at a fraction of the price. Many of them actually generate uh, cost savings. They're, they're, they not only cost recovery, they actually generate savings. So you know, we can we can keep doing things the way we've done. We can you know double down on tough on crime or tinker with the status quo, but it is not going to shift the needle. It is not going to make us safer. And you also touch on drug decriminalization in this book, something we have talked about at uh, length last time you were on the program. And as I said last time, I have found the decriminalization argument very convincing in the past. I, I find myself a little less convinced these days. I mean, Vancouver has implemented this with small amounts of opioids, crack, meth, and cocaine for personal use allowed. And we are seeing some sort of dystopian open-air drug markets, very high opioid deaths, mass human suffering. And the BC Premier has even reacted recently by seeking to ban open drug use in playgrounds and parks. And I guess my big question on the drug criminalization thing is just like, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if what if it's not helping? Well, first off, I mean, we we don't have an epidemic of open drug use in parks. There's 
there is none. It's been a, it's basically a big moral panic and you, you can go and find, you know, find me five or 10 or a hundred examples of it. You're not going to find it. Uh, I remember prior to decriminalization, finding drug syringes at my children's preschool outside in the little park area uh, where the trees were, where they would play. That was prior to decrim. And that was not in the downtown east side. Okay. So the idea that, oh, I found a syringe here. Someone's like, I found a naloxone needle over in this place in this public area. Like that's not, you know, we can go to any part in Canada and find stuff like that. Okay. So this has primarily been driven by a reaction, you know, a conservative right-wing reaction against things like safer supply against decriminalization as part of a much broader sort of suite of things that's designed to try to, you know, use harsh things like forced treatment, which we also know has resulted in increased deaths. So, you know, should there be some rules around not using alcohol and smoking and having drugs at playgrounds? Yeah. The problem is what the province has brought in is basically to exclude almost entirely any public space. And the whole idea behind decriminalization is that people would not be uh, harassed by police when, for example, the police are walking down some street or whatnot. You know, the the issue though with the drug unregulated drug crisis is most people who die are not using outside anyway. They're actually in our homes. So the debates become really um, it's a real side it's a real side sideshow to be honest. It's not again responding to a real public safety issue. The real public safety issue is people continuing to die in huge numbers throughout the country. When you compare how Alberta is doing right now, which which clearly is not following, you know, any kind of harm reduction model, the most recent data is a 37% increase in unregulated drug deaths. That's a huge jump. And they they were all touting, oh, we just need to make people get into recovery. That's the way to fix this thing. And that was always clearly wrong. You need to have both, you know, safe places for people to use, a substitute uh, with a safer supply and provide them with evidence-based recovery. We know that that's what the research shows will work. And, and there is no province doing that right now. Not BC, not Alberta, not Ontario, nobody. So there's not a single jurisdiction in Canada, really, or the world that's actually doing what all the public health research tells us we need to do if we're serious about saving lives. And in, in Toronto recently, uh, there has been a conversation about safe injection sites in Toronto. We recently saw a mother killed in a shootout near a consumption site, and, and one of the center's staff was charged in relation to that incident. In addition, neighbors in that community have been reporting high levels of crime in the area. Support for these sites does now seem to be eroding somewhat. How do we balance the needs of drug users with with those of, of the residents surrounding these sites? Yeah, sure. So I think first off, the, the main problem with having safe places for people to use is there's not enough of them. And that's why we see people concentrate in them. And so in Calgary, Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi said when they had a similar kind of concern about the uh, supervised consumption site in downtown Calgary, he said his one regret was that they didn't have uh, more of them. He said people need to have access to them and not to have it all concentrated in one little area. So that's part of the reason why people are concerned about this. The other thing I would just say too is I, I do think that there is undeniable evidence that that these places have saved thousands and tens of thousands of lives. I mean, it's we're talking about millions of, of visits. So people who are who have these addictions are looking for someone to to be there when they're using these drugs. They're going to use them anyway. And the only thing that happens at a supervised consumption site or an overdose prevention site is there's someone there so that if you literally hit the floor overdosing from these drugs that criminals have provided you with and you don't have a safe supply of them, they're there to revive you. That's that's literally all that happens at these places. So without them, people will continue to use these uh, substances, but they're using them in back alleys, they're in the, using them in, in uh, shelters or in residences or in vehicles or in vestibules of businesses. 
the problem does not go away. So I think what what we see in terms of the reaction to things like homelessness and the decampments, things like shutting down these safer supply programs and and overdose prevention sites, is people want the problem gone. They don't want to see it. They don't want to be impacted by it. Fair enough. the The problem is with the the way that we're we're reacting with these kind of harsh sort of shutdown. Let's get some more police and boots on the ground, as they say. Is it actually doesn't make us safer? Vancouver just hired a hundred new police officers. Guess what? Our crime rates are up, and that's that's Vancouver Police Department figures. Why? Policing is reactive. So again, I think the bottom line that comes through in my book, indictment, is we need to stop going to these criminal justice tools like police and prisons to deal with what are public health issues and societal challenges like homelessness, mental health, substance use, poverty. There are good programs that work to deal with those things. And we can stay safe. Like we can have safer communities through when people are are at risk, getting those kind of supports that I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. And just one more last question on on the issue of decriminalization and safe supply. We are seeing some doctors come forward now and say that the discourse has gotten quite heated, that they are afraid to voice an opposing opinion. Last month, a handful of Canadian addictions experts penned an open letter to the federal minister of mental health and addiction saying safe supply of the opioid hydromorphone has increased opioid availability, reduced prices for opioids. Uh, meant that the provided drugs are often sold to acquire more fentanyl. Um, But one key takeaway from that letter is that they are hearing from physicians that they are afraid to take a different position on this issue. And recently, Dr. Julian Summers has talked about, you know, the BC Centre for Substance Use, trying to have him disinvited at a conference. He talked about that on this podcast. If harm reduction advocates are so secure in their convictions, why are they needing to shut down the debate? I think that there's a, there's a, there's sort of two debates happening on safer supply. One is whether we should have it at all, and the other is how to do it properly. And those are two different debates, and they get conflated into one. So there are people who, on principle, are opposed to safer supply. They there's no version of it that they really will tolerate, and that's because they are their focus would be on uh, treatment only, abstinence based recovery, and that's a lot of people. That letter you mentioned a minute ago, people can go online and see who wrote the letter and what their conflicts of interest are and all that stuff. You know, fair enough. Like you can look into that. And the National Post coverage, even of that that particular uh, letter you mentioned, where people did did name themselves, so they didn't feel uh, silenced at all, um, said that you know noted that there was actually no evidence really to back up what they were saying. That said, I think that as someone who is who is who is supportive of the idea that we need to replace toxic contaminated street drugs with regulated drugs like that in principle makes sense and there is evidence to support it so there's evidence to support that i want to have the conversation about how do we do it properly like let's have that conversation and where i start with is it is supposed to be a substitute so if someone is is addicted to fentanyl which there are many people now and we offer them hydromorphone that's not a real substitute for most people that's like if you had a you know you're addicted to whiskey and we're like here's a bud light you're like, I don't want Bud Light. That's not going to help me. I'm going to go sell my Bud Light and buy some whiskey. So that's that's clearly not the right mix. And and there are uh, a very, very limited number of, of program spaces that are providing a direct one-to-one, what I describe as a one-to-one substitute. Those people aren't diverting that. Why would you, why, like, it makes sense, right? Why would you sell something if it's what you wanted, right? If you're going to sell or give something away, it's because it's not what you need. It's not actually replacing what you need giving you an uncontaminated product in return for your contaminated product, so to speak. No one's actually exchanging them, but that's the the notional idea. 
So I think that's really where we need to go is, is people need to be provided with a, a reasonable substitute that there needs to be a regulated supply of, of drugs for the tens of thousands, probably a hundred thousand or more Canadians who do use drugs, right? And again, these aren't just those people out in the community on the streets. These are people who are, who, you know, have professional careers and mask it really well and are at risk of dying and are dying. So that's, that's kind of where I go. And I think that we need to continue to provide people with, with hope and options so that they can stay alive. And in terms of the evidence base for all of this, there there are critics that say that the evidence for safe supply is very weak. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Adam Zivo at the National Post, who says that researchers are often relying on self-reported data and studies. What's the data look like? Like how would you how would you walk us through what what data actually exists here? Yeah, I mean that's that's really not uh, accurate at all. The Safer Supply Community of Practice online, people can go on there and you can actually look at all the peer-reviewed research. You can also look at the evaluation reports and opinion columnists like like him don't necessarily understand the world of, of research. And so people have tried explaining it to him. I've seen them do that online. So there's a difference between like a randomized control trial and there's a difference between that and an evaluation report, right? Evaluation reports are are different than than doing a research project. So to give you an example of some of the evidence that is out there, even in those evaluation reports, they relate to things like overdoses and overdose deaths. All right, you can't fake dying, <laughs> um, and the the folks that have have participated in those safer supply projects, as as you know, imperfect as they are, we see uh, lower rates of overdose deaths. That that's the key metric for me. Other people have have actually said to me, "Well, I think we should look at other metrics." I'm like, I think when when this is the leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 59 years old in provinces like British Columbia, the main and 99% weighted metric needs to be reducing deaths. And I stand by that position and people have accused me of, of saying that that's not the right metric for them. And that's shocking to me, to be honest, if we're at that point where we're like the main metric shouldn't be that. So, so I do find there's, there's, there is good support for safer supply programs. They are new, they are relatively new. So you don't have massive track records. And that's why there is monitoring and evaluations done of them. When I wrote my book, uh, Overdose, and it was published in 2020, and you know, it's based on research from like 2018. So it's a little old now. In the in that book itself, people can go look at it for themselves. I talk about the risk of diversion and say, like, the last thing we want to do is have like a you know, Oxycontin flood the market kind of thing. So it, it's not like people haven't known about the risk of diversion. It's that those who are who are who are actually on board with the idea of substituting in safer supply are working on, you know, how do you get it right? And that's where I look to the the public health people. And to the extent that people are receiving a diverted supply and it's causing problems, like, yeah, we need to know about that. We need to look into that. And I don't think that the polarized debate is is healthy or productive for that. I don't think this issue gets resolved on social media or in the opinion pages of the National Post. I think if we're serious about it, we need to have uh, public health panels that review this with people who've been impacted and, and, and again, prioritize um, uh, saving lives. And your book puts forward a ton of possible ways that we can go about dealing with all of the issues that we face as a country right now. There are so many here. Reading about Norway was fascinating. Another one was looking at a program in Oregon for first responders that has been very successful. And there is that pilot program in Toronto now modeled on that. These are sweeping changes. If you could just choose one out of everything you put forward in this book to be adopted overnight, what, what one would that be? The, the biggest impact one wouldn't be for, for me and my community necessarily. It would be for Indigenous people. And that the reason I, I go there is because Indigenous people are overwhelmingly disproportionately uh, victimized 
and subject to the criminal justice system in terms of uh, incarceration. And the rates are, there's no word to describe them at this point. Unconscionable is the best I could come up with. We're looking at, you know, now 32% of federally incarcerated inmates are Indigenous. When you look at female federally incarcerated people, it's 50%. You go to the provinces, it's 70 to 80% Indigenous prison populations in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And it is in 2019, 2020, right before the COVID pandemic kind of skews a bit of the stats, 100% of all female youth in custody in those two provinces, Indigenous, 100%. So that's where I would say the one thing I would do immediately would be to to provide proper funding for existing Indigenous justice programs, that's Indigenous-led policing and peacekeeping, that have been shown to reduce crime by violent crime by 25%, and of course, not surprisingly, get much higher satisfaction ratings from community members than you know white RCMP officers, and uh, Indigenous-led healing opportunities, things like healing lodges, which are secure facilities, and people have reduced recidivism, things like on-the-land healing, you know, more organized programs with elders, kind of like what my father-in-law was trying to get access to. People are doing that in their communities. So we we need to see a real financial support, recognition of the inherent rights of Indigenous people to govern themselves in areas of criminal justice. And I mean, the bottom line is their approaches are are much better than the Western model that's been imposed on, on them and that we're all following. And when I speak to Indigenous people about revitalizing their legal systems, they're doing it now. They're not waiting for permission. And we see examples of that in the book. But we do need to get out of the way and we need to provide the funding uh, that's commensurate to the, the challenges that they're facing. And just lastly, Ben, I want to spend a moment on faith, which is something we do not talk about in public. But yeah. there was... Um, a thread of spirituality that runs through this book, both in the Indigenous healing practices that you were talking about, but also in your own life and in your own family. And can I just ask you, I know it's very personal, but to just speak about that to close today, about how that faith has informed your approach to all of this and your approach to our neighbors who are suffering across this country. Yeah, I know. I appreciate the the question. And, it, you know, it's it's kind of incredible we don't talk about faith more in our society there's a real taboo about it i think for good reasons in some ways because we have legacies of faith being imposed on people and particularly christianity so i think it's but it is healthy to talk about it and we know that two-thirds of people for example identify as as christian and and most canadians identify as having some faith background so i think having some some space to talk about it's really good and it absolutely impacted me i mean i when i started doing this research i was i was going through a real I'd say midlife crisis is the best way to describe it. And part of that was going back to my own faith roots. And I I would literally be waking up in the morning before I would do these interviews with with folks and even before starting the project. And I'd be uh, praying, you know, I'd be trying to put myself aside and start trusting God more. I started reading the Bible, which I'd never done. It's kind of incredible, you know, someone who thought they were a Christian and never actually read your main religious text. Like I, that's most Christians haven't actually, right? So I kind of thought there's a lot of hypocrisy there. I started saying, well, I better, I'd like to actually read this thing. And it it started to really change things. I I began to actually read, you know, as an adult, the ways that Jesus was talking to people and interacting with them. I saw him like when a woman caught in adultery was brought to him and they wanted him to say, yeah, let's stone her. They said, the law says we're supposed to kill her. What do you say? And of course, you know, people who know this, it's incredible what he says. He says, whoever's without sin needs to throw the first stone and one by one it says they all walked away and then he went to her and he said uh, your sins are forgiven right so the the mercy that you see there is incredible um the 
healing of people with leprosy. Like leprosy wasn't just a, a you know horrific skin disease. It was also if you as an observant Jewish person would to touch someone, you'd be spiritually unclean. You couldn't go to the the synagogue or temple, and, and you know it was like one of the worst things you could you could do. You know we've got a an issue right now going on in the Middle East with Israel Palestine. Jesus made the people who are the central heroes in some of his parables the Samaritans, which were the most hated people at the time by Jewish people. And he said, you know, when he had a story of the Good Samaritan, it was the the person who was the good neighbor. That was the question. Who is my neighbor? It was not the priest who went by. It wasn't the fellow Jews. It was the Samaritan. Jesus is a Jewish person saying this. So it was was, his message then was revolutionary and astounding. It was that we need to love our neighbors. We need to be merciful to people and we need to forgive those who harm us. And that, I mean, that is a very, very different message and ethos than what we hear today in, I'd say, mainstream culture. I think it's a powerful message for people, whether they're Christian or not, you'll hear people say, like, I really, I'm not a Christian, but this stuff that he said and how he treated people, like, we need more of that, you know, and people look up to him in that way. I look up to him as as someone who, you know, who really saved me, saved me from myself and my own ways. And and I, I just really put my trust in him and appreciate forever that, you know, the mercy showed me. And um, so, yeah, so that's kind of my, my personal take on it. So as I'm entering these meetings, then hearing these stories from people who are incarcerated, people who committed murders and sexual offenses, I, I didn't go in like I would have a few years ago, you know, where I would have been like, oh, this is, these are the bad guys, you know, like, uh, they kind of deserve what they get, right? Do the, if you don't, you know, want to do the time, don't do the crime, all those things we hear. Instead, I entered it saying, you know what, I'm no, I'm not any better than they are. Before God, we're all, we're all, we've all fallen short, and we all need forgiveness and need to turn from our own ways. So having that change of heart, that open heart really allowed me to actually hear and listen, to have ears to hear what they were saying and to have some compassion. And so, yeah, so that's a message that I would, you know, share that I'm sharing with other Christians. I'm speaking at like a church on a Sunday morning in a, in a week or two here in the Vancouver area. And, and there's a really long history of people who, who similarly like, uh, you know, John Howard, people have heard of the John Howard Society, Elizabeth Fry, and they were they were Christians who were motivated by their faith, the restorative justice movement. Also, not just Christians, but uh, Jewish people, Muslim people, um, who have been really motivated by the desire for reconciliation. And that that was motivated by their faith, but they've been able to do it in, in a secular way. That's not about converting people or anything, but it's it's driven by that sense of, you know, life change that um that they they have either experienced or that they they draw inspiration from their faith. So yeah. So thanks for the chance to share a bit about that. Well, it is a message of, of real humanity and hope. And I appreciate you being willing to talk about that today and, and starting this national conversation on our criminal justice system, which very much needs attention. So thank you, Ben. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 